Well, good morning. Good to see you here. If you are new, welcome, and you're very brave. Uh, in the back seat or the seat in front of you, in the back of that seat, there are two things. One is just a little blue card that says, Welcome. Uh, please feel free to fill that out. Just kind of gives us information of who you are, how you found us, how we can help you, and, and those types of things. If you are old, as in you've been here for a while, um, not old, but you know, uh, seasoned, um, we would uh, invite you also, if you have prayer requests, you have needs, you have questions, to also use that card uh, to get that kind of information. There's another card on there that says sermon card, and what you'll realize on there is that just kind of gives you uh, what's going to be preached, and you can throw it on your refrigerator and, and be prepared maybe by just reading the text that week of what we're going to be going through as a church. But I ended last week's sermon, and I went downstairs, and Mike said, what did you do? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you forgot to preach seven verses. And I'm like, oh, there's that. So um, that card is now totally wrong because I had to insert a new sermon and preach the seven verses that I didn't preach. So, well, you can look at the card and kind of do the math and push the dates down. So that was just a little information. Couple basic announcements. Are you coming up, Valerie? Are you going to do this? Okay, so work your way up here. All right, so Valerie doesn't want to be up here. Okay, oh, you're going to come too? Fantastic. So uh, we have the women's retreat coming up, and the signups are doing well, but we're coming down to the wire, and so we wanted to encourage you. We were going to pass the iPads today. We thought, probably not the best day to do that, um, and so we are not going to do that, but they wanted to give a final plug for women's retreat. Say what you need to say, ladies. Everybody, yes. And so for me, that's a really wonderful um, time to share the Lord and to um, grow our, our relationship as well. So that's why I was here. This is the biggest fear of mine right now. <laughs> so, or top two. Take your time. <laughs> I warn people that things might come out of my mouth that you don't really know. We hope so. Mm -hmm. People just serve you for way too many reasons. Mm. It doesn't happen to me. Um, and we have any food restrictions, we don't let that stop you. Um, they have vegan options, gluten-free options, they're all tasty. Man, I'm getting down my knees right now. <laughs> um, Um, no one needs me to worship 
I feel like I'm super unscared for an invasion of your dreamers. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm valid mm-hmm. there. I get to hang out. I don't get to be mom. I don't get to be wife. See, that sounds rude. No, I get it. I get it. I'm leaving the next premiere to see everybody. <laughs> Okay. Yes, good job. Uh, the other announcement is next Sunday we have our monthly prayer uh, gathering, and uh, that will be an awesome time, A, just to pray for our community right now, which obviously could need prayer or, or needs prayer, uh, but also we'll have Kevin Beach, who's a missionary from Mexico, just sharing his story. It's a pretty, pretty amazing ministry he has down there. Uh, and so he'll be there sharing, and we'll be praying and worshiping, and it will be just an awesome time. So that's next Sunday uh, at 5.30. Um, lastly, if you have youth, high school youth um, or junior high youth, I think it's for all of them, uh, we have a youth camp coming up, um, and we have like right now, I think 70 kids signed up, and that's because it's a three-strand, so it's a lot of, uh, a lot of churches collectively putting this together, and it's going to be epic. So if you're uh, son or daughter or niece or nephew, whoever hasn't signed up yet, encourage them to. It's very minimal cost because we front-loaded a lot of money as a network to try and make sure everyone can go. It's going to be a blast, so uh, sign up there as well. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get right into the Gospel of Mark. So if you bow with me, we will just pray uh, as we prepare a little bit. Father, Lord, we gather this morning in the midst of what feels like a really dark and chaotic time. And although it maybe feels unusual to us right now, perhaps it's no different than any other time. Living in this hostile and broken world, Lord, one full of violence and sin and disease, it is true that we take great comfort knowing, Jesus, you're on your throne. We take comfort that you are ruling and reigning, that nothing surprises you, that all things are coming to pass in accordance with your will. Let your kingdom come, Lord, and let your will be done. We confess, Lord, that even though we pray such things, we are not often ready for your kingdom to come as it does. Because sometimes it comes in ways and words that we don't expect. You call us to repent and believe. And in that, you reveal that our deepest problem is not education or sanitation, but it is the restoration of our hearts. Lord, we fear so many more things than you so easily. We fear disease, we fear disappointment, we fear disillusionment, we fear death. And in those fears, Lord, we turn to so many other saviors than you. So Lord, during this time, what feels like a very dark wilderness, I pray that we will... Yes, in our exposure and in our vulnerability, we will be drawn to you as the only hope that we have in this world. We are thankful, Lord, that we have the freedom to gather this morning and the privilege, as many in our community and across the world are losing their comforts, some losing their lives. Would you reveal to us, Lord, how thankful we ought to be for the little things that we take for granted every day? You have blessed us to live in a very 
safe and comfortable place. And sadly, Lord, it feels like it is that very place that we live in that insulates us from gratitude. So we take a moment to thank you, Lord, for all the things you have given us and all the things you have protected us from that we don't even see. We thank you for your provision and your protection, and we especially thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for calling us to follow your son, Jesus. Thank you for not only commanding us to turn from sin, but inviting us close to yourself. Thank you for not abandoning us in our disease, but coming close and even taking our disease and brokenness upon yourself that we might be healed. Lastly, Lord, we pray for our church and we pray for other churches in the world. Lord, just bring an end to the spread of this virus. We pray that simply. We pray that boldly. We pray that you might comfort those who are suffering and even more those who have already experienced loss. We pray that our church and other churches like us will be a voice of reason, a voice of hope, a voice of courage in a time when there's lots of voices speaking fear. We pray you will not allow us to hide away from the world only to protect and love ourselves, but to be ready to love our neighbors with courage. Most of all, we pray that you, Lord, will protect the vulnerable around us and eradicate this virus completely. Lord, we will clean what we can. We will avoid what we can. We will guard what we can. But we truly know that healing is going to come from you. We admit that we don't know exactly what to do right now in the face of what feels like an insurmountable force. And so, we look to you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and yes, we're still in chapter 1. So uh, we will go through, I keep on saying how it's the fastest uh, Gospel that is written, and yet I keep going through so. So we will uh, get bigger chunks soon, but this week we're going to make up the verses that I didn't read. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, I'm going to start to read, and we will get right to work. I read out of the ESV if you're wondering, and I've realized that the ESV might have been updated since then, so occasionally there's a few words that are different than my version even, but it is out of the ESV generally speaking. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother, the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm excited to teach you, or at least be taught with you, what the Lord might say through perhaps what are some familiar passages. Now, from the first moment of creation, I mean, Genesis 1 shows us that the voice is powerful. 
Voice is powerful. Proverbs 18 teaches us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And in the first chapters of Scripture, we see how God's tongue brings life, brings things into existence that did not exist. And we also see that the tongue of the enemy in the garden is what brings death. The moment man listened to the voice of the serpent, whom Jesus calls the father of lies, God's voice of truth began to have less influence in our lives. Our lives became governed by all kinds of voices. And they still are. The voice of our parents is powerful in our lives. The voice of our friends, the voice of our spouse, even the voice of ourselves, All of which can speak both encouragement and contempt. Voices are powerful. And for better or worse, the collective noise of these voices have shaped who we are. They affect how we feel. They influence the decisions that we make. These voices are so powerful in our lives that, if we're honest, many of the words that have been spoken to us govern us years after they were spoken. It's like they play out in our minds over and over again on a feedback loop. And they generate thoughts And these thoughts lead to emotions, and these emotions lead often to actions, many of which we don't even see or understand or desire. Voices are powerful. And over time, as you have practiced certain things in response to these voices, those things become somewhat permanent, and whatever the loudest voices have said in your lives become the definers of your reality. And in order to change that reality, which might have been created and around for a long time, we need a a word. We need a word that's powerful enough to cut through the noise. We need a word that is kind enough to reach our ears. And we actually need a word that's truthful enough to pierce our hearts to break through and change that reality. More than just a new voice, the Bible says we actually need ears to hear. You may have heard that phrase before. Ears to hear. Jesus echoes this Old Testament phrase many times when he's teaching through the gospel. Let he who has ears hear. Having ears to hear is, at that time, was, I should say, a really common kind of idiom that referred to People whose hearts were ready to receive and act upon the truth they heard. Because we hear lots of things, and oftentimes it takes a lot of us a long time to actually receive it and respond to it. And many never do. So Jesus says we need ears to hear. Thousands of people, think about this, thousands of people heard what Jesus said, and yet... A handful of people seem to have ears to hear. 
So our series is titled, Reintroducing Jesus. And while I'm not actually, Mike and the other pastors that preach are not going to share really anything brand new about Jesus. It's my prayer that God is going to give you ears to hear. That the voice of Jesus might perhaps be received in a new way so that you will want to listen to His Word first and foremost in your life, which is what we all need. So as you begin to look at verse 14 here and 15, here's where we'll begin. It says, Now after John was arrested, speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. These are the first words that Mark records Jesus saying. They aren't the first words that some of the other gospels record him saying. It's likely he did some ministry or at least talking, prior to John being arrested. That's recorded in the other Gospels. So this is where Mark starts. John, for his part, we talked about last week, he was a strange voice. He was a very loud voice. He was a very controversial voice that came in the wilderness as predicted by the prophets. But as the Word of God in the flesh, Jesus arrives in Judea. Voices like John's, which were very powerful, drew huge crowds, begin to fade away, and the voice of Jesus begins to rise. Jesus comes preaching. Jesus is a preacher. He is a teacher. He is proclaiming. And He is preaching what Mark calls the Gospel of God. The good news of God. And it seems as you read these first verses, particularly verse 15, his message had three basic parts to it. The first thing Jesus says is the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Now, while the majority of the world may not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they do believe, that is the majority of the world, that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who really lived and who really died. Even if you don't believe in his resurrection, you are a fool not to believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed. But even among those who reject the resurrection, you say, ah, no way, he didn't rise from the dead if he even died. But he didn't rise from the dead, even among those who don't believe in the resurrection, strangely, a large majority of people grab onto what Jesus taught. They embrace the teachings of Jesus. They see Him as a humble teacher. And the reason why they embrace Him as a humble teacher is this one fact. They haven't actually read what He's taught beyond the golden rule. If you Read what Jesus actually taught. And I mean actually open the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John. And you actually slowly read what Jesus taught. You will find that this very humble teacher sounds like a lunatic. Saying some 
very outrageous things if what he's saying is true. And it begins right here. In saying the time is fulfilled, remember this is written to a Roman audience. This is not written to Jews, although it is speaking to the fulfillment of all the promises that came from the Old Testament. But what Jesus is saying here, proclaiming all this truth to all people is that I am what you've all been waiting for. That the entire world and everything has been directed towards me. That's a pretty big claim to say all of life and all of history centers on me. I've the person you've been waiting for. And so this is the first thing Jesus preaches. And he further says that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of God is near. We're on the eve of its arrival. And when the Bible speaks about kingdom, there are volumes written about what it means in terms of theology. But I'll be hopefully a little more simplistic. When we're talking about kingdom, what we're talking about is the rule and reign of God the Creator over His creation. That's what we're talking about. Now, it follows that God's rule, right, His kingship, if you will, was rejected in the Garden of Eden. There was a choice. Or is God going to define what is right and wrong in our lives? Is God going to be the center of where we find meaning and how we understand our origin and how we understand our destiny? Or are we going with what we think? And so God's rule was rejected in the Garden. As a result, all of creation, if you read passages like Romans 8, you would learn that it was subjected by God to fertility in hopes of one day redeeming it. Of restoring it. So the arrival of the kingdom and the arrival of the king means that God's rule has re-entered the world to begin to set things right again. To bring all things under the rulership once again again, of God. And that includes the relationship with God. That includes the relationship with self, relationship with other, relationships within communities. All these things God is beginning as Christ arrives to renew, and they will be renewed insofar as they come under the authority of God in Christ. See, the pathway for all these things to flourish, right? All those things I named are the things that are screwed up in the world. Relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, relationship with one another, relationship with the world. All those things are all messed up. They begin to flourish as we surrender our efforts to hold on to what we think is right and that old life we have, and we actually surrender and embrace the new life that God promises us in Christ. This is how you conduct yourselves as citizens of one kingdom by living in another. God's kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet where sin is completely removed. The presence of sin is gone. That is in the eternal state. But you can, if you will, be uh, protected or guarded as you come under the kingdom from the power of sin, from the influence of sin, from the governing rule of sin. And insofar as you begin to do that, like I'm going to live according to Christ, I'm going to live and follow His ways, you begin to flourish in the ways that God designed us in the beginning. 
Still not perfectly, still not fully, but we do live in the sense in the kingdom now and, and yet it's still to come. So Jesus says the kingdom is coming, things are beginning to be restored, and we are going to surrender or calling people to surrender to that. It's kind of like the army is on the edge of the city. Surrender now or else it's not going to go well. But then he says something that's probably most interesting. He tells us how you actually enter into the kingdom. See, the entrance to the kingdom of God requires this thing called repentance. Repentance. And sadly, we were discussing this as elders, it seems like much of today's preaching and teaching has all but eliminated sermons about sin and calls to repent. Even if the the truth hasn't fully been exchanged for a lie, it seems like the less we speak about repentance and things like sin, you begin to cheapen grace and empty the gospel of its power. Now, a growing number of Christians, and maybe you don't agree with this, and maybe you haven't experienced this, they just refuse to boldly talk about sin for fear of offending They don't want to talk about how far short of God's glory we fall, but how we've done a pretty good job. They want to exclusively celebrate God loving us just as we are. And He does love us as we are. But I agree with the apologist Sam Elberry who taught this. And I don't know if I put it up here. No, I didn't. God's love for us as we are is a sign of His grace, but it is not a sign of His approval. God's love for us as we are, which He loves you as you are, come as you are, that is a sign of His grace, but that is not a sign of His approval. And this is why the Gospel begins with repentance. Anyone can repent. Everyone is called to repent. The gospel began, as we, according to Mark, have read, with the ministry of John the Baptist. And what's the first thing John the Baptist said? Repent! Now Jesus begins his ministry, and what's the first thing Jesus says? Repent! Peter after having betrayed the Lord, after having been restored by the Lord, after having become a leader amongst the twelve, and then a large group of 120, his first sermon he preaches, having been filled by the Spirit, what does he say? Repent! A gospel devoid of a call for repentance, a call to turn from your ways, a call to stop Walking a path away from God cheapens the richness of grace and robs the cross of meaning. This quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer has probably been quoted more than anyone else in regards to this idea of grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus. Cheap grace. And so, there's two ditches on every side of the road though, right? One ditch is where all you talk about is repenting. Turn from you sin, you sinner! Turn or burn! You are wicked! God is so angry at you! And there is actually a place for that. But you can't stay in the ditch. There's another ditch on the other side of the road that we can fall into where we don't preach repentance at all and we just preach believe. We need to be in the middle. Repentance isn't the only thing required It is required, but Jesus also says we must believe. It's not just repent. It's repent and believe. And that's hugely important. Because you must believe also to enter the kingdom of God. We must not only call people to repent. We must call them to grab onto something. Be captivated by something. Pursue something. Believe something. See, Jesus preaches in a way that causes us to look forward as much as backward, right? If you're only looking backward at your sin, only looking backward at your wickedness, that is a very despairing way to live. You do need to look at that, but you also need to look forward. Jesus calls us to look forward, to not just turn away, but turn toward something. I love how the prophet Jeremiah describes our twofold problem. Our twofold problem is this. And some of you here have only gotten stuck on one. Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, it's not enough to just stop drinking from the toilet. You also have to begin drinking from the living waters of Jesus. It's both. And if you continue to drink from the toilet and drink from the living waters, it's toilet water. Right? And so you do have to turn away from from what you've been drinking, what, you, what is really maybe sustaining you, but actually hurting you. And drink deeply of the living waters of Christ that you might be healed. Calling someone to believe, but not repent, makes grace too cheap. It actually ends up costing less than Jesus, if that makes sense. But calling someone to repent but not believe, makes grace incredibly expensive. It's actually more than Jesus. And so you have to call them to repent and believe. And this is what Jesus does. He says, turn away and turn toward me. That is the entrance to the kingdom. Not only do we enter God's kingdom through repenting and believing, but this is actually how we continue to live in the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, 
You sh- I'm sure you've heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer who hammered his 95 theses on the church door. You may not be familiar with all 95. I won't ask you to quote them. But you might want to familiarize yourself with the first one. The very first one as he called the church to purity, called the church to get back to a biblical gospel. This is what he wrote. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was a constant turning. Guess what? We are so jacked up that the toilet water looks appealing sometimes. And so we constantly are going, okay, I got, I got to keep drinking. I got to keep drinking. I got to keep turning and keep drinking. Turning is not the whole gospel message. The whole gospel message perhaps is better described as returning. Right? You're, you're returning to where you began. Returning to how you were designed. Returning to what God wants for you. So when you, when you think about repenting and believing, perhaps it's better to think of it this way. Because I think we hear prepare we're like, turn or burn! That's kind of what repent feels like. Perhaps you can think of it this way. Repenting is voicing this. I have not loved you, God as I ought. But it's also believing and listening to the voice of God who says, but I have loved you. Right? That's the gospel. It's admitting and acknowledging, I haven't loved you, God. And him saying, but I have loved you. And I love you now. That's powerful. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's the gospel of God. Now, as we continue on, Christ's message is pretty radical, and he has what we see, um, a radical call that comes with it. He proclaims very publicly, but then he actually calls personally. Mark records the calling of two sets of brothers that you may be familiar with, Simon, who is actually Peter, and Andrew, They're passing along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon, the Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So that word immediately cropping up seven times. It'll crop up 41, I think, times in the gospel. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It's an urgency to this. But let's just kind of note where Jesus' ministry begins. He had done some other things prior to John's arrest But Mark records his ministry really beginning in Galilee. Now Galilee, if you're not familiar, there's a sea and there's also a coastal town. Uh, But this is the the northernmost kind of region of Israel. And it's really the region 
that is the hometown of Jesus, or it contains the hometown of Jesus, who would be Nazareth. So Jesus was from Nazareth, and it's important to note that uh, as you read in the Gospels, not in Mark, but in, uh, I believe, Matthew, Nathaniel, who becomes a future disciple, is told by a guy named Philip, hey, we found the Messiah, and Nathaniel is skeptical. And why is he so skeptical? Because he can't possibly believe that the Messiah, something glorious, could come out of something so armpit-like like Nazareth. Nazareth was not a good place. That's why Nathaniel's like, really? Concrete? That's where it came from, right? Or whatever city in your world is the city you go, I don't want to live in. Like, that would be it. The place you go, no way that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, came out of there. That's an important point to think about. It's a relatively dark place, and this is where the light of Christ first shines. More than that, this region in Galilee is the place where Jesus performs his first miracle. It's the place where he calls his first disciples. It's the place where he fed the 5,000. It's the place where first Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. It's the place where he gave the Great Commission. You're Galilee? Why not Jerusalem? Right? The city. The epicenter of life. It's the very opposite of that. Did you know, and this is, again, just me, we won't find a verse saying this, but I think sometimes we don't recognize the voice of Jesus in our lives because it comes from the most unexpected place or unexpected person. Sometimes it comes from a place we never expect to hear any truth coming from, and sometimes from a person we really don't like. But it's the voice of Jesus sometimes coming through that person to give you some wisdom, even if it hurts to hear it. Or said another way, I think sometimes we don't recognize the voice of Jesus because His voice is so different than the voices we typically listen to. I think truly Jesus, as you read the Gospels, you'll see that He spends most of His times in places like this doing His best work. Places where you go, no way something good could come out of that. He's like, yeah, most of the time that's where Jesus is found. Mark records the voice of Jesus calling his disciples, these first guys, to follow him. And at the most basic and I think important level, we learn this. That Christianity is first and foremost about devotion to a person. It is about following Jesus. I said in the very first sermon, I think, Christianity, for many of us, our faith for many of us, has become defined by so many other things whether it be uh, ethics or morality or certain just rituals in our life, and not necessarily about Jesus. Jesus is not where we would begin to introduce our faith to somebody because Jesus is actually not where it begins for us. But here what we see is that following Jesus is what it means to be a Christian. The word disciple, as you may or may not, refers to an apprentice or a student, and disciples in Jesus' day would literally follow their rabbi around. And wherever he went, 
They would learn from his teaching, they would follow his instruction, and they would be trained to live like him, to speak like him, to act like him. But basically, a disciple is a follower, but only if you like take that literally. Like it's really someone who literally follows. And though it will become evident as we work through Mark, it's also noteworthy who he calls to be his disciples. And what I mean by that is that he didn't, these aren't like blue chip guys, right? These aren't like draft pick number ones. These guys are in the way later rounds of at least our draft picks. But if you spend any time reading the Old Testament and the New, you will find that God has an uncanny way of taking nobodies and making them into somebodies. In fact, I would argue that's the only kinds of people he picks. It's almost as if he picks the people that everyone like stereotypically skips over when they're picking teams. Some of you had this experience and you were skipped over. Some of you were the ones skipping over people. I won't define who that is. But the truth is, like, whether it's the slow kid, the unathletic kid, the one-legged kid, you're like, I don't want that kid on my basketball team. They'll be picked last. But these were the like, first picks for God. If you survey the greatest draft picks of God, you have fugitives, boat builders, shepherds, religious zealots, teenage moms, politicians, prostitutes, adulterers, invalids, criminals, ancient IRS agents, and blue-collar fishermen. Without doubt, God accomplishes His mission with those that we would consider weak, weird, or wayward. And if you don't consider yourself that, there might be a problem. I've heard it said that one of the most attractive parts of the gospel narratives, and I would agree with this, is that the disciples and their story reads less like the Avengers and more like Dumb and Dumber. Okay, think about that. Like, they're not real heroic. And here's the most attractive, that's not even the most attractive part. The attractive part is these are the guys telling their own story to be recorded. So if you're going to tell your story, well, here's what I did when I was with Jesus, right? Might embellish it a little bit. I mean, you imagine Peter, like, I mean, I didn't betray him. It was kind of like, you know, I just kind of was quiet. Like, whatever. You'd make it sound way better than it was. But if you read the Gospels, they don't sound better. They sound way worse. That speaks to the authenticity of the Gospels but it also speaks to the heart of the gospel writers. They were very conscious that they were messed up. Are you? Very aware. We know Aaron's messed up and not afraid to admit it, right? But that's all of us, right? There are those that go, I know I'm messed up, but I would never tell anybody. Really? It's interesting how often, um, and I don't say this to, to puff up myself, but if I say something in a sermon or I blog, there's sometimes, depending on what I say, someone will say, like, that was really brave to say as a pastor. I'm like, really? I wasn't thinking it was brave. I thought I was actually just 
telling you how messed up I am. Like everybody else. The gospel writers are very conscious that they're messed up and in need of Jesus. And that's beautiful. Because the voice of Jesus calls them anyway. The voice of Jesus calls you to follow him even if you're going to walk with a limp. But Jesus doesn't just say, hey, just follow me. He actually says, I want you to serve me. Did you know that there are a lot of people who try to follow Jesus without serving him? I love what Francis Chan observes. He says, many people in the church have decided to take on the name of Christ and nothing else. This would be like Jesus walking up to those first disciples and saying, hey, would you guys mind identifying yourselves with me in some way? I mean, don't worry. I don't actually care if you do anything um, or change your lifestyle at all. I'm just looking for people willing to say they believe in me and call themselves Christians. I remember reading that going, oh my gosh. That's, that's, that's convicting. Anyone can follow Jesus. Everyone calls themselves a Christian. At times, it, like, where viruses are spreading across the globe, it's like every newscaster suddenly becomes a Christian. Like, my prayers are out with you. Like, who are you praying to? Like, and I don't know how you send your prayers to a person. Like, I thought they were supposed to go up to God. It's just weird. But anyone, everyone's a Christian. Every football player is a Christian. Every, like, like, what? Anyone can follow Jesus and call themselves a Christian. But Jesus says, I want you to follow me and serve me. The voice of Jesus calls very ordinary men. But the interesting thing, the awesome thing, he doesn't call them to be extraordinary. If you notice what he says, he instructs them to look at what they ordinarily do differently. Right? He doesn't say, hey, Peter and Andrew, you guys are done fishing. We're done fishing. What a waste of time. Or that has set you up so you can do greater things now. He actually says, I'm going to make you different kinds of fishermen. Jesus repurposes what we might consider ordinary for his mission. The call to serve is not a call away from what you know or what you have or even who you are on a practical level but to say that what you know and what you have and what you've experienced, that actually is part of your calling. Every experience you have, the way you've been shaped, your family, your personality, your skills, your opportunities, that's all been or supposed to be used by Jesus. The voice of Jesus not only reminds us that we are worthy but that all God has given us is valuable. Be it our time, be it our treasure, our talent, or dare I say, our tragedy. That's a hard one to think about. You tell me this hardship is useful for God? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to get over it. There's healing, perhaps, that needs to take place. But to say that that healing has a purpose. 
and that tragedy has a purpose. So the voice of Jesus calls them and it calls them to change and it calls them to a very new kind of life. And the voice of Jesus in these guys' life and anyone who responds to Jesus' voice becomes the governing power in your life. It doesn't mean that every single voice disappears the next day. It means one becomes more important in how you view God and how you view yourself and how you view the world. Mark notes that Andrew and Peter and later James and John, they don't require much persuasion. People often argue, oh, Jesus much... They must have known who Jesus was. They must have had conversations before. He must have given them like the four reasons why that they should follow Him when He comes and they should be ready. They doesn't say that. All it says is they responded to His voice immediately. There was no delay in their obedience. When we hear the voice of Jesus, I wonder if our response can be characterized as immediately. Immediately. How often we tell our kids to obey. We define our obedience in our home as immediate, without complaint, without arguing. Immediate. Because many times delayed obedience is just disobedience. But as adults, we get a little more clever. We get a little more creative. We tell ourselves, well, once we get through this, once I get to this, once I get past this, then I'll start to follow Jesus' voice. Then I'll start to follow Jesus. Many of us are doing that right now. Once I get this, past this hardship, past this thing, or accomplish this thing, then I'll be ready for Jesus. We cleverly couch our delayed obedience in justifiable excuses. Perhaps it's demands of our jobs or the needs of our families. Or we convince ourselves that passages like this, they don't literally mean what they mean. It didn't really, I, I mean, I understand what it says, but that's not what it means. You have to interpret it correctly. They certainly didn't drop everything. I mean, they figuratively dropped their nets, and then a couple days later told their dad, we're going to have to leave the family business. It's not what it says. We shouldn't ignore Peter's words. In Matthew, in speaking to Jesus, says, we've left everything and followed you. So, is Peter, like, being figurative? And Jesus clarifies. It's like, we've left everything. What are we going to have? And this is part of a larger conversation that began, I believe, with a Pharisee. And listen to Jesus talk to them. And, Jesus like, and Peter's like, we don't, we, we've, lost, we've left it all. And that guy's not getting in? He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you, will, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Is that literal? 
My guess is that guys like Peter, who was married at the time, he was called, and many other disciples had left all of those things. Jobs had changed. Houses had been lost or left. Families had been separated. I'm not suggesting that's the prescription for everything that every Christian should ever do, but that it's a description of what the first Christians did. I think we should all stop and consider at some point that if we cease to be a Christian today, or if we never began following Jesus to begin with, would our life look any different? And that's a basic question that we probably have heard before, but it's a good one to ask ourselves often. Stop being a Christian today. Would it look any different? Really? Or if I never began to follow him, would it look any different? The voice of Jesus calls us to lose our life, or at least our lifestyle, that we might actually find what is truly life. And that's what he does with these guys. Well, as we bring this passage to a close, I just want to note one last thing that I've always been struck by, and that is what the voice of Jesus doesn't say. Many of us hear what we think might be the voice of God to follow and go, and we don't go because we lack information. We know it's the voice of Jesus inviting us, but we fear walking down the path because we're not sure exactly where it leads. I'll go if you show me how this all works out. But we'll find, as you see with Jesus and the rest of Scripture, God is very good at giving directions and not telling you destinations. Jesus didn't give these guys a preview of coming attractions and tragedies. And there were many. Namely, they all were killed. He didn't front load his call by detailing Hey, let me tell you about three years of awesomeness we're going to experience. You guys are going to see miracles. You're going to see thousands of people fed miraculously. You're going to see healings. You're going to see blind. You're going to see resurrections. Right? In front low, like, let me tell you, come on. You want to see some cool stuff? Come with me. And also... You're going to be, um, at least I'm going to be arrested first. Then I'm going to be tortured and killed. I mean, don't worry, I'll rise from the dead. But after that, you're eventually going to be arrested. And then a lot of you will be tortured, and most of you will be killed. But it'll be great. Right? He didn't tell me that. He asked for some faith. He said, Go this direction. What's going to happen? Trust me. Trust me. You know how often he does that in Scripture? Hey, Abraham, let's go this way. Yeah, where are we going? Trust me. Moses, sorry, walking through the sea. Uh, how's this going to work? Trust me. Without qualification or description, Jesus simply commanded, follow me and just listen to my voice. They followed Jesus wherever he led, and without ever being told what was next, they trusted Jesus most, more than their families, more than their friends, even more than their own. Only Jesus has the right to ask you to do what Jesus does, because only Jesus is God. 
The question for us all is whether or not the voice of Jesus is going to be the greatest voice in your life. Will you trust him with what needs to be restored in your life or are you going to trust yourself to fix it or someone else? Can you even hear the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, through all that noise in your life? Are you able to separate a little bit and just listen to Jesus? Whose voice is actually your authority, whether it be someone else or even your own? Whose voice sets the priorities in your life? Whose words feel more life-giving than anyone else's? Whose voice do you wake up to first in the morning and whose voice do you go to bed listening to at night? Because that will shape who you are. It's not that we only have one voice in our life that influences our decisions, but we need to have one voice that rules them all, and that is Jesus's. His voice is a voice of invitation, a voice of affirmation, a voice of direction. And so I pray that God will grant you ears to hear, not my voice, but Jesus calling your name to repent and to believe, to drop it all, to follow him, and to see who you are and what you have right now is useful for his mission right now. Perhaps you've never responded to his voice, and so I would compel you today that today is the day. That if you would repent and believe, you will be saved. Don't delay because the kingdom is nearer than ever. It's more near than it was. Or perhaps you are someone who once believed, once followed quite earnestly, and yet has stopped listening to the voice as you once did. And so I would compel you to come back to the voice of the shepherd who first called you, knowing that that shepherd has not given up on you. He said, he will never lose you. My sheep hear my voice. If you're feeling that, that tingle in your heart, that compelling in your heart, that's the voice of your shepherd. He says, I know them, and they follow me. And what does he do? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That's the promise of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us and for your patience with us and for your constant pursuit of us. This morning I ask, Lord, that the voice of Jesus will become louder, increasingly louder in our life and the other voices that might be important but certainly not essential become quieter. That as individuals and as a church, Lord, that we will have our priorities in life and our decisions, but even our identity defined by the voice of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for continuing to speak to us. Thank you for not being silent. Give us ears to hear. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we continue our worship and song and giving we're going to take communion and this is a table for those who are the sheep of the good shepherd those